Good evening, uh, dear Christian friends. I suppose we would say that with the weather outside, this was the kind of a night when it would have been easier to have stayed at home. But it is nice, isn't it, after a busy day, and I know that we are all tired to come into God's house to relax, to forget some of the tensions of the day, and at the call of our soul to worship for a few moments. I am glad that you came this evening, and I hope that you are glad also. This is our third Lenten Vesper service, and in this Lenten season, as we again turn to Jesus Christ and we consider his sufferings and death, we are hoping to deepen our spiritual life, to have ourselves drawn just a little closer to him. And in this series of sermons, we are talking about some of the disturbing questions that took place in the sufferings and death of our Lord. And you recall that two weeks ago tonight on Ash Wednesday, uh, that first question that we talked about was a question that the disciples asked Jesus in the upper room that night. When Christ had said, one of you is going to betray me, one of you will double-cross me, and they said, Lord, is it I? And I'm sure we found that a little upsetting and a rather troublesome question when we asked the Lord the same question. And then last Wednesday night, as we went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we heard Jesus praying, and he turned and went back to Peter, James, and John, and he looked and he said to them, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Couldn't you even stay awake one hour for me? That was another question that bothered us, wasn't it? Tonight we have the third one, and it happened right here at Gethsemane also, that when Jesus got up and he had spoken to the disciples for the third time and told them to sleep on and take their rest, he looked and it was a moonlight night and he could see Judas coming and he had some of the temple police and they were there with swords and with rods and staves and they had some kind of weapons and they were carrying lanterns and they had torches. And when they walked up to Jesus, Jesus walked up to them and said, uh, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus then, you recall, said, I am he. And as he did, there went forth power from Jesus, and they fell down like dead men. And then Jesus asked them again, uh, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus again said, I am he. And then he said, Let these men go. And just about that time, you know, Judas came up, one of the twelve, and he said, Hey, O Master, and with a smile, he walked up to our Lord and he greeted him and planted a kiss on his face. And then it was, you know, that Jesus turned to Judas and he said, Judas, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. And about that time, that's all that Simon Peter, old Pete Johnson, could stand. And you know, they had two swords. In the upper room, they had said that, you could rest assured, that Simon Peter had one of them. And when they walked up the soldiers and laid their hands on Jesus, you can just imagine Simon Peter starting to boil and to say, get your dirty hands off of him and reaching for the sword. And he just, oh, and he just simply struck it into what he was doing. And he might have simply cut the head in two of this particular servant, but he hit him on the right ear and he cut it off. But then you recall Jesus turned and said, Enough of that, Peter. You put that sword back into the scabbard. We'll have 
no more to that. And then Jesus said, Don't you know, Simon Peter, that again I could call on my heavenly Father and he would give me more than twelve legions of angels. But don't you realize that I must drink this cup? Don't you realize that these things must take place, Simon Peter? And don't you realize that they have to take place because how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, he said, that it's got to be this way. Now this is that disturbing question, and if you've ever read it and meditated about it a bit, I'm sure that it upsets you as it upsets all of us. Jesus said, don't you realize, Simon Peter, that I've got to be betrayed? Don't you realize that I've got to drink that cup? Don't you realize that this must take place because the scriptures must be fulfilled? The scriptures say that this must take place. This must happen. And therefore, don't you realize, Peter, that all this must take place? It's got to happen. It's got to occur. When you and I look at that question, doesn't it bother isn't there something within you and me that says, well, is, is this thing all cut and dry? Is this thing all predetermined and all predestined? Is it all in a package? Is it all taken care of? Uh, if Jesus had to be betrayed and the scriptures had to be fulfilled, and if he had to drink that cup, he had to die, that the scriptures would be fulfilled because the scripture said that these had to take place. Doesn't it give you sort of a scary feeling and a weak feeling and... Don't we say to ourselves, well, I guess this thing's all in the bag. This thing's all taken care of. This is all sort of cut and dried. It's all settled. There's nothing you can do about this thing. It's all predetermined. It rather bothers, doesn't it? And we want to look at this question tonight. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? that says that these things must take place. These things had to happen. These things had to occur, this betrayal and this suffering and death of Jesus. It raises quite a bit of disturbing things and bothers us within. It raises this question, what kind of a God is God, doesn't it? Is God the kind of a God who perhaps, after all, when he created the angels, that he didn't create them with freedom of the will? Did he perhaps create the angels without freedom of the will that they had to do what they did? Could it be that when God created the ministering spirits as angels that he didn't just create good angels? Could it be, if this thing is all cut and dried, uh, couldn't it be that he created good angels and evil angels and that those evil angels that rebelled against him couldn't do otherwise? If the scriptures had to be fulfilled, uh, couldn't it be possible that's the kind of a God God is? That God, after all, created wicked angels. And that what they did when they rebelled, they couldn't do otherwise. And that God, therefore, in sentencing the wicked angels to an eternity in hell, uh, sentenced angels who couldn't do otherwise. That bothers us, doesn't it? Could it be, since Jesus said, well, the scriptures have got to be fulfilled. This thing has to take place. I've got to be betrayed. I've got to go to my death. The scriptures have to be fulfilled. They say this, therefore, this has got to take place. You and I say, well, what kind of a God is God? And I'm sure we'd say tonight, if God's the kind of a God uh, that created angels without freedom of the will, without choice, then he made some of them evil angels, and they had to do what they did when they rebelled. 
you and I may say, well, that isn't the kind of God I want. Uh, that kind of a God isn't worth knowing, and I think we'd be right. But we look to the scriptures and we say, what do the scriptures say? The scriptures tell us that God only created one kind of angel, so they were good angels. And he created one kind of angels with freedom of the will, that they had a choice. If God had created wicked angels as being wicked, then it would not be true, as the scriptures say, that Satan is the author of evil and that he is the father of lies. You and I have to say tonight that God's the father of wickedness and of evil, that sin had its beginning in God. And if sin had its beginning in God, I'm sure you and I would not want to know him. We would not want to love him, would we? But you see, when we again look and we say, is this thing all cut and dry, that it must be, it had to take place, did God have this thing all predetermined and it was all in the bag, and all we are is just a, simply a group of Marianites and automatons and just carrying out things that we simply can't help. And it brings up this question then too. We say, well, is God the kind of a God that created our first parents without freedom of the will? Is it possible that God, when he created Adam and Eve, uh, that he created them uh, without choice, that they had to sin, that they had to do what was wrong? Isn't that possible that he may have done that? That Adam and Eve didn't have any choice. And in the Garden of Eden, when God says you can eat of every tree in the Garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, isn't it possible that uh, they couldn't do otherwise? That if Scriptures have to be fulfilled, and these things had to be. There had to be a betrayal because Scripture says so, and because it prophesied that, and because Scripture said that he was going to die, that he had to die. Could it be possible that God is the kind of a God that, after all, when he created Adam and Eve, that they simply had no choice, that they simply were automatons, just simply carrying out something over which they had no control, and yet... When you and I, we say, what do the scriptures say? But the scriptures say uh, that God created man in his own image. And therefore, you and I know that on the basis of scripture, just as the angels were created with free will, that no angel had to do what he did. And when the evil angels fell, they did it because they wanted to. That in the same way, God assures us in scriptures that Adam and Eve didn't have to sin. When they were tempted of Satan, they didn't have to do wrong. God created them in his likeness, and that means in holiness and in righteousness. But it rather upsets us, doesn't it, this thing? It, it's got to be. It must be. The scriptures say so. Therefore, this thing must take place. It bothers, it upsets us, and we say, well, here, here I am in the midst of all this. Is it all cut and dried? Is it all in the bag? Is it all settled? Has again God determined this whole business? And all that I am is just simply someone being forced to carry out a role against my will? It bothers us, doesn't it? Has it ever bothered you? Again, there's sort of a weak feeling that we get, sort of a, a hopeless thing because then we look at God and when we say, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it's got to be this way, it just had to be this way and no other way, we may say, well, is God this kind of a God that God has predestined some of us to damnation? 
Could it be that God just decided arbitrarily that some of us have to go to hell? Is it all in the bag? Did God just say, well, no, I'm not going to save everybody. I'm going to damn a certain number of human beings. And then, of course, that bothers you and me. And then we say, well, I suppose, since, again, I'm always on the short end of everything anyhow in life, in my family, with my sisters and brothers, I suppose that if God has predestined some to hell, I can well imagine who's in that group, and we may say it, and then again, fear may come, and we may say, oh, God, no, but I suppose that's the way it is, and then we may turn against God and say, and I resent that, that you have predestined some to damnation. If the scriptures have to be fulfilled, and what the scriptures say had to take place, if again this betrayal had to take place because Scripture prophesied it, and if Jesus had to drink that cup because Scripture said that again he had to, we may say to ourselves, well, I suppose then that God's just that kind of a God that he's determined ahead of time that some of us are just going to go to hell. But if it bothers you, what do the Scriptures say? When we turn to these scriptures and we're upset with this question of Jesus, let's realize that nowhere in the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, is there any statement in scripture that God has ever predestined or predetermined that anyone should be damned. Nowhere. Don't ever forget that. There is no predestination to damnation ever mentioned in the Word of God. Let nobody here tonight, when he wrestles with this problem, and all of us are troubled with it, you say the Scriptures had to be fulfilled? Yes, they did. You say that there had to be a betrayal because Scripture says so? Yes. You say that he had to drink this bitter cup of suffering and death? Yes. Because the scripture said so? Yes. And again, we may say, well, if that's the case, then could it be that God is this kind of a God, that some of us have just simply been damned by an arbitrary decree of his, and that's it? But that isn't true. That isn't true. Thank God when we turn to these eternal scriptures, there isn't one word, may I say it again, that ever implies that God ever damned anyone. God again says the very opposite. God says, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Don't ever sell yourself on the idea and then become hopeless that God's damned a certain group, and I am unfortunate enough to be among them. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? Well, that kind of a God wouldn't be a God worth knowing, would it? That God would have predestined some of us just by an arbitrary whim or fancy of his will that we're lost. But this thing bothers us. Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. 
Don't you realize that the scriptures have got to be fulfilled and that they say that I'm to be betrayed? Don't you realize, Simon Peter, that the scriptures say that I must drink that cup? This must take place. This must happen, Peter. You and I say, oh, this thing of must, that word scares us, doesn't it? It had to be. Immediately we draw the conclusion that this is all cut and dried, it's in the bag, nothing you can do about it. What kind of a God is God? And it, it bothers. But thank God in the scriptures, God isn't that kind of a God. Nowhere does God say that. And if I ever feel it, I must say to myself, but that isn't what God says. God is a God worth knowing because he doesn't say that. Then again, it may trouble you and me when we say, well, if, if everything is all cut and dry and it's all taken care of, then is God this kind of a God that perhaps he sent Christ only to be the savior of a, a choice few? Could that be possible? We may say, if this is all cut and dry, if it's all taken care of, and you and I may be on the short end or on low man on this totem pole, we may say, well then, I suppose when Christ came into the world and he suffered and died for the sins of men, that he didn't do it for everybody. I suppose that he just did it for a select few. And then we say to ourselves, well, he evidently didn't die for me. Evidently he didn't die for me. He, he sure didn't think about me. He must have left me out. But oh, thank God, friend, when you turn to the word of God... We say, is that kind of a God worth knowing? That kind of a God wouldn't be worth knowing if Jesus only came and suffered and died for just a few of us. And then we'd all say tonight, well, he evidently passed all of us up here in Emmanuel tonight because we'd say, how do we know that he died for us? Thank God when we turn to scriptures that Jesus, he answers that so beautifully when he talked to Nicodemus that night, remember when he said, for God so loved the world. Don't you forget that. That word world, you see, that word world includes everybody. That includes everybody from Adam to the last child that will ever be born of woman. Don't let any time in your heart and mind ever get the thought, let it ever enter, that Jesus Christ came to save some people, but he didn't come to save all of us. And then to think for one moment that he excluded you or he excluded me. We say to ourselves, uh, this question, this, this bothers, this thing of determinism, this thing of how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? Jesus said to Peter that night, Peter, the scriptures have got to be fulfilled. They've got to again fulfill what they have recorded, that I'm to be betrayed and that I'm to die that it must be so. It's got to be that way. It can't be any other way, Peter. Don't you realize that? And Peter didn't quite realize it, and we, we wonder, well, in view of that, uh, how about it? But, oh, we ought to thank God tonight that when we turn to the scriptures, these scriptures that must be fulfilled, that thank God they tell us that Jesus Christ didn't come into the world and just die for a hand few, just a pick group, an esoteric group of individuals leaving you and me out in the cold. Thank God, no. He, again, is the propitiation, the Word of God says, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus Christ didn't come to be your Savior or mine. 
Because you see, sometimes in life, if again sin has become rampant, if sometime in life you and I feel that we have disgraced ourselves and despondency comes, oh, it's so easy to draw the conclusion that Jesus evidently didn't come and he didn't bring salvation for us. This thing bothers, doesn't it? These are some of the things we wanted to talk about when we're alone, we're not on the air, when we come into God's house, some of the things that bother us in our Christian experience. Because, again, when we say it must be, it, it had to be, it just had to happen, this betrayal and this death, and we say, well, what kind of a God is God? It, it disturbs, doesn't it? It bothers, it rather upsets us. And, uh, again, we say, I, I'm uneasy within on this thing. I just can't reconcile myself to some of these things because we may say, well, then evidently is God this kind of a God that God actually delights, delights in using again this sovereignty, this power of his in damning people? Is God the kind of a God that just gloats when he sees us so lost? Is God the kind of a God that on the day of judgment, if you and I should be lost, that he'd laugh in your face and mind and say, goody, 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 God, no. But again, we may say, well, if this is all cut and dry, doesn't God gloat in the loss of a soul? Again, the word of God says, as I live, God says, I swear by my existence, I promise you, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If anybody's here tonight that thinks that God's going to gloat if I'm lost, will you just remember Jesus when he overlooked the city of Jerusalem? When he looked out oh, and saw the temple and he sobbed and he cried, he just broke down and he lost control of himself and sobbed, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, remember. When he said, Thou that killest the prophets who stones them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. Don't let anybody ever tell you or anybody ever tell me that God's the kind of a God that gloats when one's soul is lost. It breaks his heart. It breaks his heart, even though, as Jesus said, it was true. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Again, he had to be betrayed. The scriptures said so. He had to drink that cup because the word of God said so. But let no man ever draw the conclusion that Christ gloats if he's lost. Well, what kind of a God is a God who gives us the scriptures and then tells us they've got to be fulfilled? This is the way it's going to be, and it's going to be in no other way. This is, again, it's cut and dried. This is it. And everything that it says, it must be fulfilled. It's got to be just that way. We may be so upset and disturbed and we may say, well, what kind of a God is God? Is God this kind of a God? That God has taken all responsibility from you and me as regards our salvation. You know, it's easy for us to say, well, if there had to be a betrayal, if Christ had to go to the cross, if this thing is all set, if we are just marionettes and just simply automatons with no freedom of the will, just being forced to carry out a part, 
then evidently God's this kind of a God that God's taking all responsibility as regards your salvation and mine away from us. Then, you know, the next step is we say, well, why should I even try to live a Christian life? What difference does it make? If I'm lost, I'm lost. And if I'm going to be saved, I'm going to be saved. I've got nothing to do with this thing. Therefore, the temptation comes. Have you ever found yourself asking yourself that question? Why do I want to live a Christian life? If I'm saved, if this thing is all cut and dried, and if I'm saved, it doesn't make any difference how I live. And therefore, I might as well kick over the traces and I might as well go out and live in the world because it isn't going to make any difference. You may even make yourself feel good for a little bit. You may say, Oh, I feel relieved because it's not my responsibility anymore at all. It's all his. He's the one that's deciding this. I, I don't decide this. These are some of the things that you ever sit down and just weigh this question. It bothers, doesn't it? Did you ever lose a little sleep over it? Did you ever, what kind of a God is God? Yet when you and I turn to the scriptures, we find, has God taken away all responsibility as regards your eternal destiny in mind from us when Jesus in the scriptures tells us that when he comes back that each man is going to stand before him and be judged that we are going to be held accountable before him as regards again our treatment of him that there is a day of reckoning a day of judgment and a day of accountability then we may say to ourselves tonight, well, how can you reconcile this question? That Jesus asked Simon Peter, Peter, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? How can we say, well, the scriptures have got to be fulfilled. They must be. Uh, this must take place. There must be a betrayal. I must go to God. How can we reconcile this that the scriptures must be fulfilled and still not believe that when God says that he yearns for your salvation mind that he's not a liar have you ever felt that and afraid to say it God if the scripture had to be fulfilled if there had to be betrayal Jesus had to die and this thing is all predetermined have you ever said this, God? You must lie when you say that you long for my salvation. How could you long and really yearn? How could you again in your heart say it's the greatest desire of your life? And yet didn't Jesus tell us when he was here on earth that if again you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, you leave the ninety and nine and you go out and you seek the lost? until it's found and you and I say how in the world can you reconcile this now I think we've come to the place where let's see whether this can't be reconciled true enough the scriptures do prophesy from the Old Testament the betrayal of Jesus they do foretell that he will be betrayed into the hands of sinners as you and I know and the scriptures do prophesy that Jesus would go to the cross now as we go to Gethsemane he's talking to Simon Peter 
You notice when Simon Peter drew the sword, he said, No, this isn't going to take place. And Jesus said, Put your sword back into the scabbard, Pete. Don't you realize that if I would stop and call to my Heavenly Father, that he would send me more than twelve legions of angels? If I wanted to stop this, I could. But in other words, he said, supposing, Simon Peter, that I'd ask him to send me 12 legions of angels. Legion had a bit over 6,000. So again, if I asked my Heavenly Father, he could send me right now over 70,000 angels to help me. But if I would do it, Simon Peter, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that says that I must be betrayed and I must go to my death? Jesus could have called for help from over 70,000 angels. We say to ourselves, how does it come that the scriptures prophesied this? How does it come that the scriptures could tell it and that Jesus said this must be fulfilled? Was this again something that God had predetermined and that by his power it had to be? The answer, friends, rests in this. Let's not forget that our God... He has an attribute, a quality about him that you and I don't have. That is the quality of foreknowledge. You may say to me tonight, preacher, what's foreknowledge? Foreknowledge is the knowledge of something before it happens. And I think we can make it rather simple. Let's go back into eternity. God is a God of foreknowledge, that God knows everything before it happens. Not that God wills it or wants it to happen, but with his foreknowledge, he being God, knows everything before it happens. You and I don't have that quality, that attribute. God in eternity, looking out into time, with his foreknowledge, saw that in sending Jesus into the world, that there would be one who would betray him of his own free will. And because God saw that, God used that betrayal in the story of Jesus, and God so foretold it and prophesied it, Therefore, it had to happen not because of any power in God that God said it's got to be this way, but it happened because God in his foreknowledge knew that there would be a man who of his own free will for 30 pieces of silver would betray the Son of God. And as regards Jesus going to the cross, it was not that God said to his son, you've got to go, and there, absolutely because of my power, there's nothing that you can do against it. But in eternity, God the Father spoke to the Son and asked him if he would go, and the compulsion was love. It was not force. In eternity already, Jesus had said, Yes, Father, because I love and will love the human race, I will go. And therefore, we find our answer in this perplexing problem in the foreknowledge of God. God in his foreknowledge, not that he determined it, he knew that Jesus would be betrayed. It doesn't mention Judas's name. God knew that somebody by the name of Judas, of his own free will, a covetous man, would betray Jesus, and God foretold it. Judas did not have to do it. There was no power in hell that could have forced him to do it. Judas did it because he wanted to do it. In the same way with Jesus, when Jesus said the scripture must be fulfilled, not that God said in a determined power, but Jesus said, again, because I've already promised in eternity 
When you bring this down in your life and mine tonight, let's know this. The scriptures must be fulfilled, and they have been. As regards the foreknowledge of God, I hope this doesn't surprise you right now. God knows where you're going to spend eternity, and he knows where I'm going to spend eternity. You may say to me, preacher, that's a horrible thought. If God already knows, then it's all cut and dry. No, it isn't. God knows everything. God knows whether you and I are going to be saved or whether we're going to be lost right now. How does he know it? God knows it because of this. God knows what your reaction and mine is to Jesus Christ. In other words, God knows what your answer to Christ is and what mine is and what your answer will be on the day of your death and mine. You see, God's foreknowledge depends upon not something that he's determined, but it depends upon your answer and mine. The answer rests with us. If tonight you and I can say this, I have embraced Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I have repented of my sins and I have claimed him as my Savior. Then you and I can say in all humility, God knows where I'm going to spend eternity because God knows, again, the answer that I have crushed it with your hand and you'll say, no, it's dead. And so the wise man said, little boy, if I say that the bird in your hand is dead, you will open your hand and you will let the bird fly out. So he says, little boy, when you ask me whether the bird in your hand is alive or dead, little boy, the answer rests with you. And this is the answer. God has never predestined you and me to hell. There is no indeterminate and indiscriminate counsel of God that has ever damned you and me, and I don't care who you are here tonight. The answer rests with you. God knows, but on the basis of your answer and mine. And that brings us to a serious question. What is your answer and mine tonight? Jesus calls you and me. Behold a stranger at the door. He gently knocks, has knocked before, has waited long, is waiting still. You treat no other friend so ill. And will he prove a friend indeed? He will, the very friend you need. The friend of sinners, yes, tis he with garments dyed on Calvary. Admit him, lest his anger burn, and he departing their return. Admit him, or the hours at hand, you'll at his door reject its stand. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? They have been fulfilled and they will be fulfilled. 
whether you or I will spend eternity in heaven, the answer rests with you and with me. God grant that your answer and mine to Jesus Christ tonight is I have opened the door. I have let him in. He is my Lord, my Savior, my God. And then we can go home feeling good. The peace of God, which passeth all human understanding, keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.